Afternoon, everyone. I guess we should get started now. My name is Eric. I'm with the AWS security team, and today we're going to talk about security. Uh, just to, to set the stage here a little bit, uh, I've given some fairly technical talks in the past at reInvent. Uh, virtual networking, IoT security, uh, the joys and perils of encryption. This talk is not one of them. The question that we get from customers all the time is, how do you guys do it? How do you run the security organization at AWS? Uh, Andy said that we're doing something like 70 launches here at the conference this week. And every single one of those things has to go through a security review. We have to manage all of the infrastructure that we've got. How does Amazon do this? And so that's what this talk is about. The first question that people ask is, is this system secure? I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what the risks are that you face. I don't know how sensitive your data is. I don't know what the compliance requirements are. Uh, I don't know what risks are acceptable to the business. But I'd argue that this is actually the wrong question to ask. Security is easy. You buy some wire cutters, and you cut the power cord. Like, not the network cord. Like, there's, there's problems with that. You cut the power cord. But this is a trivial answer. It's trite. There's no utility in that system. It doesn't do anything for anyone. You're not going to delight your customers with an inert box. And so the trick here is usable security. And security is an optimization problem. You have a limited budget measured in time, dollars, and people. The business has to move forward. Customers have to be delighted. You have to launch things. If you don't move your business forward, you're not going to delight your customers. But if you're having security issues, you're also not going to delight your customers. And so you have to balance those two out. So we came up with this, this definition, this mission statement for the security team. And I think it captures everything that we do. That new draconian AppSec process that you instituted, it's going to stop bad things from happening. But it's going to slow down innovation. It's going to make the entire organization move slower. Fewer things are going to be launched. That host that got popped because you didn't patch, now you're looking at forensics and trying to reconstruct what happened and uh, figure out how far they got versus just patching. Like, that would have been so much cheaper. So, this may not agree with how other people think about security, but it's where we've wound up. And in this statement here, we take a very broad definition of system. And over the past couple of years, I've come to realize that there's one component that matters the most in this system. When you're trying to figure out how to build security mechanisms and how to move forward with bar-raising velocity and bar-raising security, it's this one component that matters the most. 46 chromosomes, humans. Humans are the most important part of the security system. I'm an engineer. It actually says engineer on my business cards, and my job is all about people. This is a very disappointing realization for me, but that's where it is. Like, I thought that I was going to be hacking on some sort of computer system as a professional, and what I've spent most of my time hacking on is people and organizations of people. There's a lot of technical work involved. I get to use hexadecimal occasionally. But when I look back on the past couple of years, the most important thing that we've built is the security organization. So if that's the most important thing, let's learn about people. This is Charles Darwin. He's the author of The Theory of Evolution. We're not finches, but human beings are subject to natural selection. And for the vast majority of our history, through the periods that did the most to shape us genetically, we didn't have what we currently consider to be polite society. On the timescales that we're talking about, agriculture is a recent development. And so what follows 
is what happens when an engineer gets access to Wikipedia. If you have any formal training in sociology, psychology, whatever, you probably want to close your ears, but let's go. This is Arctotus simus. This is a giant bear that was wandering the earth while we were busy evolving. Uh, Smilodon, saber-toothed tigers, there's a thing called Andrews Arcus. It's really horrifying, you should look it up. And so what we're trying to do here is we're trying to perfectly secure a cloud using humans that have been genetically selected to be good at not getting eaten by giant bears. For much of our existence, most of our energy has been dedicated to basic survival. Shelter, food, just making it past to the next day. Failure to get along with the group is going to get you kicked out of the cave. Getting kicked out of the cave means you're probably going to die. As a result, humans have turned out to be pretty interesting. This is my father's plane. My father flies. It's his passion. This is his baby. Um, it's, got a, it's a 1976 airframe, but it's got a, a modern interior. You can see the two yoke mount GPSs. The big screen in the middle is a, a panel mount GPS tied into the autopilot. And what you can't see is the iPad that he actually uses to fly the plane. If he ever gets lost in this thing, he's never going to live it down. But what you probably didn't notice is down near his left knee, there's a little pouch. And in that pouch, there's a spiral-bound book. It's a checklist. Every single plane comes with one of these. This isn't the exact checklist that it's, it's, that's in his plane, but it's, it's effectively the same thing. My father got this plane while I was in college, which is something north of 20 years ago now. Every single time he takes off, he fishes that book out and he runs through the checklist, every single time. He's had the plane for 20 years, he has the checklist memorized. Like you can say, Dad, what's number six? And he'll tell you. And every single time he fishes the book out, he runs the checklist. This is a Gulfstream. It's basically the same thing as my father's plane. It's a little bit more expensive, it goes a little bit faster. But it's also got a checklist. There's an email that came across one of our internal mailing lists. It was about this plane crash. And it piqued my interest and I started doing some reading. And I mentioned it to my father and he's like, oh yeah, that's Luke Katz. So in this weird coincidence, the man that chartered the jet that crashed was a friend of our family. It was kind of unusual. So on May 31st, 2014, this is what happened. The airplane overran the end of the runway and all seven on board died. And as you can expect, there was an investigation and it all started with the gust lock. This is a standard control that's used as part of every flight. The control surfaces, the rudders, the ailerons, et cetera, move the air uh, over the wings, and this is what gives you control over the plane. Well, while the plane is parked, if the wind blows, it can move the control surfaces and damage them. So the gust lock is a mechanical interlock that prevents the control surfaces from moving. It also prevents the throttles from being pushed past about 6%. In this specific case, the pilots didn't remove the gust lock before trying to take off. The NTSB did an investigation. All of this is uh, in the public record. The pilot in command realized that the rudder was locked as they pulled onto the runway. They could get the throttles forward a little bit, but they couldn't get to an engine pressure ratio of 1.7, which is what you need for takeoff. They can only get to about 1.4. And so they engaged the auto throttle, which only got them to 1.5. Just after 3,000 feet, they realized that the steer lock was on. And even though they were past the, the takeoff commit speed, V1, they didn't follow the procedure. The procedure is to stand on the brakes and stop the plane. That's what you do. Instead, they pulled the FPSOV, the flight pressure sh uh, shutoff valve. They, they disengaged the hydraulics to attempt to disengage the, the gust lock. But once there's air moving over the wings, there's pressure 
on those control surfaces, the gust lock can't be disengaged. It wasn't until they reached rotation speed of over 200 knots and were 6,000 feet down the runway that they attempted to regain control of the aircraft, and at that point, the crash was inevitable. There's a checklist. Every single airplane comes with a checklist. And there are two items on this checklist that specifically address the gust lock. Before you start the engine, you're supposed to disengage the gust lock. And after you've started the engine, you box the controls to make sure that they're free and clear. All of this before the plane moves. So if we look at this, there's no pre-flight checklist. They didn't abort when they spotted the warning light. They didn't abort when they, could uh, when they couldn't throttle up. They used the auto throttle to attempt to throttle up. That's not on any procedure. They pulled the hydraulics. That's also not on any procedure. They were innovating during a crisis. And if you take a step back, you look at this from 100,000 feet up, this is ludicrous. Like, the negative consequences for aborting takeoff, at worst, you miss your clearance window and you're stuck on the ground for another hour. Or, we'll all die. Like, put this way, this choice is obvious. There's no way you could make this choice wrong, but these pilots did. So, part of the investigation showed that this was not a one-time failure. These pilots didn't get up in the morning and say, today we're going to be sloppy. Their discipline slipped over time, likely over years. And it was a small group of pilots. Maybe it was just these two. Maybe it was all the pilots that worked for this company. And their behavior, nothing bad happened. You know, they skipped the checklist, the plane landed. They skipped the checklist, the plane landed. And so their discipline slipped as a group. Had an outsider come in, they would have been appalled, but no outsider came in. This is called normalization of deviance. Remember the evolutionary forces that acted on humans for most of our existence. We were barely making it. Most of our energy went into survival. If you could cut a corner, if you could do something that made your life a little bit easier, that was a benefit to you. That was a survival trait. This isn't the only high-profile example of normalization of deviance. This is January 28, 1986. This is the Challenger taking off. 73 seconds after liftoff, an O-ring failed in the right solid fuel rocket booster, that white cylinder next to the red thing. Broke up over Florida, all seven astronauts in the shuttle were lost. This is Richard Feynman. He is awesome. There are 50-year-old videos on YouTube of Richard Feynman, and you should watch them. Like, he is amazing. Um, he was part of the commission that investigated this crash, and he only allowed them to put his name on the report if they agreed to publish his findings unedited, and it's Appendix F. You can find it in your favorite search index. You should read it. It is fascinating. It's very good reading. You should read it. Basically, what happened was there was a similar chain of events. AWS service teams are under a lot of pressure to launch, but at NASA, pressure to launch means something very different. And so it was this closed group of people. They were under a lot of pressure. Their discipline slipped, and this disaster occurred. And the point here is this isn't an isolated issue. It's two examples, there's more. It's a thing that humans do, and we're all humans. The stakes here are much higher than anything that I've ever run into professionally. I mean, bad things can happen if we do a bad job of running the cloud, but all the people on an airplane or all the people on a space shuttle, it's a much more acute choice, and humans still did a bad job here. And we run into normalization of deviance and security all the time. If you're lucky, you're going to hear these things directly. People are going to come right out and say them to you. And they're easy to find that. Usually the message is much more subtle. 
usually you've got to kind of ferret it out and figure out that people have become accustomed to behavior that they shouldn't be accom uh, accustomed to. And as you read this slide, you're thinking, I've met that developer, or we have that service team. One of the things that we worry about is the security team itself. We, uh, we have Sev2 tickets. These are pager tickets. It wakes someone up in the middle of the night. You fix it right now. Most service teams don't see many Sev2 tickets from security. But our operations team does nothing but Sev2 tickets all day, every day. And they're going to come accustomed to it. Their discipline is going to slip if we're not careful. And so we have to watch out for normalization of deviance within the security org itself. But wait, that's not all. This is Ignaz Semmelweis, and his story is a very sad one. In 1847 in Vienna, he was an obstetrician. And there was research coming out at the time that he read and he believed and he supported that said that doctors should wash their hands. Now, at the time, it was common to do autopsies on every single patient that died. And so doctors would go straight from an autopsy to a patient without washing their hands. This had the expected results. Mortality was through the roof. And this initial research showed that washing your hands would drive mortality down to like 1%. Like, stunningly successful technique. But a gentleman's hands wouldn't be dirty. They wouldn't convey death. Like, this isn't how people thought. There was a very strongly held belief at the time that this was wrong thinking. And Ignaz Semmelweis wound up getting run out of town. He was ruined because people held this very strong belief and they weren't willing to change it. Rejection of evidence that contradicts strongly held beliefs is called the Semmelweis reflex. And humans are social animals. You need to get along with the group. Again, basic survival. If you're part of a group, you can pool your resources, you can help each other out. If you get kicked out of the group, you're probably going to die. And so for humans, the definition of acceptable behavior can drift significantly. And the more deeply held that belief is, the harder it is to change. And this led me to a conclusion. I was reminded of a, a famous quote. My kid did a, a report on Winston Churchill, and so this one popped up. And what Churchill is getting at here is that humans are flawed. And so everything that we build, everything, every organization we build is going to be somehow flawed, which leads to not Winston Churchill. Humans are bad at acting consistently. Humans are bad at evaluating risk. And I'm not saying that we're all running around crashing airplanes and sending shuttles out of the sky. But in each of these cases, with these really high stakes, humans still made mistakes. And so if we're operating at much lower stakes, and we have much less pressure on us to get things right, how are we going to succeed? And so we need to understand people. So I've painted a picture of doom and gloom. What can we do? Calibrate objectively. Find a yardstick that doesn't move. And make sure that you measure yourself against that yardstick periodically. This is the outside observer that goes into the cockpit and says, what on earth are you guys doing? Likewise, outside scrutiny. Security stuff is sensitive. You know, I don't want to go down to Starbucks and pull the next geek with a laptop and say, can you please review this for me to make sure I'm doing it right? But you want to make sure you get appropriate outside scrutiny. And you have to account for the humans in your system. And they're everywhere. There's the service teams that are building things. That's the security team. It's the customers that are using your services. It's the adversaries that are trying to hurt your customers. And it's you. This is one of the most disturbing bits of all of this research that I did, is that I see this behavior in myself sometimes. Like, I think that I'm this rational being, and I'm, I'm acting in some intellectually sound way, and I see these behaviors in myself. 
So I'm an engineer. I can't resist throwing a highly quantified chart in here. AWS is growing exponentially. When I started here, there were 32 people in EC2, and I knew every single one of them personally. Now there are people in the AWS security team that I don't know, and that's my own team. We're, we're getting larger quickly. The security team is also growing exponentially, but it's growing on a smaller base with a smaller growth factor. And this is intentional. This gap here is going to get larger and larger. And so the only way that we're going to succeed at delighting our customers, that we're going to make good things happen and prevent bad things from happening, is by enlisting the entire org. We've got to drag everyone with us. We've got to have them pulling with us. And so we're already past the point where we can do it ourselves. Um, this quote predates this conference. Um, we got great quotes from Andy and Werner uh, about how security is job zero, and then there was no mention of operational excellence. Operational excellence is like 0.1% behind security. And so it's great that they say these things in public. Like, that really helps. But the rhetoric doesn't change things. He actually means this stuff, though, when he says it. Every week, we get an hour of Andy's time. The CEO of the company sits down with the security team, and we put in front of him all of the issues that we think need to be discussed. And Andy and his senior leaders spend time with us. Ask anyone on the AWS security team, they hate this meeting. Because Andy is very demanding, he sets very high standards. And so we've got to make sure that all the questions are answered, that all the data is accurate. But that's exactly what we should be doing anyway. He's helping us hold that high bar. It also means that Andy can demonstrate the behavior that he wants his leaders to show right there in the context of a specific issue. And then it rolls downhill. And that gets the entire organization working with us. If you find anyone from the AWS security team here, just ask them cold, what is the one word that comes out of Eric's mouth the most? This is what they'll say. We are all about escalation. And by escalating, I mean climbing the ladder, whichever ladder it is, to find the right owner for an issue. This can be escalating within the AWS security org. It can be escalating within a service team. And interestingly enough, it can be escalating within a customer organization as well. You're not going past someone. You're not expressing a lack of confidence in them. You're not going over their head. Like, it can be a very uncomfortable thing to do as a, a social human. You're making sure that the right leaders are engaged, the right decision makers are aware, that you're getting the right decision quickly, that blockers are cleared, and that progress is made. Escalation is an efficiency technique, but it's also an opportunity to calibrate. Our leaders are less involved in our day-to-day. -day. And so you bring them something, and they're not there every day. Their, their discipline isn't going to slip as much. And it's an opportunity to get that appropriate outside scrutiny. There are plenty of reasons for escalating. But one of the oddest is escalating good stuff. You should always take every opportunity you have to praise good work, good security ownership. Remember, it's our goal to recruit the entire organization. Pulling in leadership when a team about something correctly is great. Like, you know, leadership tells them what to do. It doesn't require constant engagement from the security team. It, it makes us more efficient. But pulling in leadership when a team is thinking right about security is even more valuable. It's a chance for very senior people to chime in and express how important this thing is. Now, I used a word there that you probably thought you knew the meaning of. I said ownership. But at Amazon, this word has very specific meaning to us. It's one of our leadership principles. When I joined the company, I encountered the leadership principles for the first time, and I thought I'd stop, stepped in a huge pile of Dilbert. 
I, I thought it was management mumbo jumbo, and I figured, you know, whatever, I'm going to go along with it. It's been 10 years, and I'm completely bought in. Our leadership principles are awesome. They're available on the website. You can download them. Uh, you should check them out. When an Amazonian says ownership, this is what they're talking about. And I'm confused. I'm missing a slide. Anyway, that last bit there, they never say, that's not my job. That's my favorite bit. When you send a note to a VP saying, Jane showed great security ownership, you're not just saying that Jane did something good. You're saying that Jane exemplified one of our leadership principles that allows us to use our corporate culture to drive the behavior that we want to see. Another leadership principle that's central to our effectiveness is our trust. When we talk about security issues, we're clinical, we are factual, we don't try to artificially drum up urgency. We are not chicken little. And so if an issue is urgent, when presented with the facts, our leadership is going to react appropriately. This bit here is really important. We don't sweep things under the carpet. We don't hide our failures. If the security team is screwed up somehow, I will own that in front of Andy and Charlie and anyone else in the company. They know that we're going to call it the way we see it, good, bad, and ugly. And because they know this, because we've demonstrated it repeatedly, they trust our assessment. They believe what we're telling them. Now, the leadership principles interlock in all sorts of interesting ways. Uh, one that balances this out is our right a lot. If you make a mistake, that's fine. Everyone makes mistakes. If you're constantly making mistakes, you're not right a lot, and we have to have a different conversation. I'm not going to go through all the leadership principles here, but there's one that I'd like to touch on. This is the first leadership principle. It's right at the top of the list, customer obsession. It is my job at times, unfortunately, to tell service teams that they're not launching the thing they thought they were launching, that effectively they've not done their jobs well. The thing they've built is not good enough. And this is a terrible conversation to be had. And if it's not done carefully, it's going to go badly sideways. And even worse, it's going to erode trust with the service team, which is going to make future interactions with them less effective, less efficient. And so whenever we have to have this conversation, we invoke this leadership principle. It's human nature to band together into tribes, into groups. And rather than it's me versus you, it's my opinion of your engineering versus your opinion of your engineering, now it's us working together to do what's right for customers. It suddenly snapped the definition of tribe to include both of us. Uh, when we were launching VPC, one of our engineers, who's a very bright guy, was complaining about our customer service team, the answers they were giving to customers, the quality of the information they were handing out. And I, I, I did this to him. I, I, I snapped the definition of tribe. And it was like a light bulb went off. And all of a sudden, he realized that like, we need to work together with customer service against the demons of IT to make sure that our customers have a good day in the cloud. So one important thing about the leadership principles at Amazon, everyone is a leader. These apply to everyone, regardless of their position. So we talked about objectively calibrating. At Amazon, we measure everything. I mean, literally, we measure everything. Uh, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of metrics there are in the metric system. Uh, we love writing down numbers. And so at security, we write down numbers, too. And we get together every Tuesday to review our metrics in advance of the big uh, AWS-wide ops metrics meeting on Wednesday. And we take it very seriously. But your metrics aren't useful until you use them for something. You have to present them in some way that gives the reader some insight about your business. 
And it's an acquirable skill. I really love turning a pile of data into some useful insight. It's not easy, but it gets easier as you do it more. And I tell every single one of our teams that's starting on this journey that their first metrics deck is going to be terrible. And it can be terrible in a week, or it can be terrible in six months. It might as well be terrible in a week and you start getting feedback. My first metrics deck was terrible. It got better. You do it quickly. You iterate quickly. It is amazing how quickly it converges. Quickly. There's been a ton written on this. I'm partial to Edward Tufte. Um, I'm not going to go into too much of this here. The problem with this is we're doing it with humans. Larry Wall is often misquoted. Uh, he was actually talking about the three primary virtues of the programmer, those being laziness, hubris, and impatience. But this quote will do. Um, I met this quote long before I worked for Amazon, but we've got our own version of it internally. You have to assume that the people working around you are competent and well-intentioned. If that's not true, you have to make some urgent staffing changes, and if you can't do that, you need to change jobs. So if the people you're working with are competent and well-intentioned, why don't things happen? Why don't things get driven? Why do systems fall into disarray? It's because good intentions don't work. They, people want to help you. Their, their heart is in the right place. But over any non-trivial length of time, anything that's hard or onerous or time-consuming is going to fall by the wayside. You need a mechanism. And one of the best things about doing metrics and doing security at Amazon is that everything is a ticket. Like, if the ticketing system is down, Amazon stops. You can't even cut a ticket about the ticketing system being down. If you want to bring your dog to work, it's a ticket. If the website is down, it's a ticket. If there's no towels in the bathroom, it's a ticket. Everything is a ticket. And so if you want to talk to the security team, it's a ticket. And it was super easy to train Amazonians to do that because they already cut tickets for everything. And so this turns our ticketing system into a wealth of information that's just waiting for us to extract it. And so rather than telling our security engineers, you have to track your time and which projects you're working on. And you, do we do it in five-minute increments or 15-minute increments or one-hour increments? And trying to reconstruct where our effort went and how our engagement is going, you just do it all in the ticketing system. And as a result of doing their jobs, as a result of opening tickets and corresponding on them, the data is captured. So that's an example of a mechanism. We're not relying on the good intentions of the service teams or the security engineers to get us data. We've got a mechanism. And so this is some data from uh, one of our medium priority application security queues. What we really want to measure is engagement. How good are we doing at engaging with the service teams? How good are they doing at getting back to us? And we can't measure engagement. But we eventually struck on the notion of staleness. It wasn't the first thing we tried, but it's the thing that stuck. It's the number of days that a ticket has gone without correspondence. And we can measure that. It's trivial to get that out of the ticketing system. And so now we have metrics. However, I don't like this graph. It's the entire screen. It's four data points. It's not dense at all. 90 plus is non-zero. How stale is the stalest ticket? Is it 91 days? Is it 4,000? Is this good? Are we doing better than last week? Or are we doing worse than last? Should I be excited about this graph? I don't like it. And so again, this isn't the first graph we came up with. This is many iterations later. I love this graph. We've split the application security team out from the service teams. So the left side is an input metric. The right side is an output metric. Amazon loves percentiles. Averages lie. You have to look at the whole distribution. So that red line is the P100. That's the stalest ticket. I know exactly how stale that ticket is. The P50 is the green line. That's the typical customer experience here. 
and then the intermediate percentiles tell me the shape of the distribution. This is a very dense graph. There's a ton of data here, and this is only half the page in the deck that I review every week. And so I love this graph. It looks like by focusing on that long tail of stale reviews, the median goes up. Like, that's an interesting thing to learn about how your team works. And by doing things like this, we're starting to calibrate objectively. We can compare this week to last, this team to that. It moves us from how we feel about how we're doing to how we're actually doing about them. We can calibrate against some yardstick. It's really useful to compare teams and leaders against the median and against each other. And you look for outliers, positive and negative. Positive outliers are an opportunity to dig in and say, why did you move faster? Like, did, did you get the fire in your belly, or did you, do you have a tool, or is there something special about your service? Negative outliers, likewise. And it's not, you're bad and you should feel bad. It's, why are you moving slower? Is there a tool that's missing? Is there something that's unique about your service? Do we need to help here? And so rather than having an engineer dig into every single one of these reviews to try and find where we need to pay attention, these outliers help us guide our attention very quickly and very efficiently. It's also really useful for quelling the, this is too hard, it can't be done that quickly. This is another one of our leadership principles. And this bit here is tough. I could do an entire talk on how, knowing how high to set the bar. But sometimes it's a lonely place to be. You set very high expectations, and everyone thinks you're insane. And if you have data showing that it's feasible to do the thing, that the deadline isn't too tight, that the amount of work isn't too large, that allows you to hold the high bar and allows you to hold it over time. So we're starting to calibrate objectively, but we're not quite there. You have to take an SLA. And at Amazon, SLAs are sacred. Uh, it turns out that for this conference, we have a 48-hour SLA for posting videos to YouTube. And that doesn't mean we think it's going to take two days. That means there's an SLA, like someone's committed. And so somewhere in the bowels of Amazon, there is a graph showing the latency from the end of the talk to the video getting posted. And there's a line at 48 hours. And we're watching for breaches of that line. Like we've taken an SLA. And so you need to take an SLA. That gives you that yardstick. So we own the AWS-security at Amazon.com email alias. And we published this alias. And we said on the website, if you email us, you will get a response from a human being in no more than 24 hours. And this is a perfect example of good intentions. Like, I wrote the web page. I hit the Publish button. It was out there in public. And exactly what you'd expect happened. People would email us. You know, if someone happened to be looking at the mail queue, they'd get a five-minute response. Um, you know, we're really good at looking at the things that fit in the window, and if something scrolled off the bottom, they might never get a response. And so we started measuring this. And just the act of measuring it caused that graph to plummet. It fell off a cliff. But it still wasn't rigorous enough. And so what we did is we turned this into a previously solved problem. Picket, there in the upper left corner, is our system for turning emails into tickets. And once it's a ticket, we know how to measure tickets. And so now every single inbound email turns into a ticket. Every single ticket has an SLA associated with it. There's a countdown timer ticking. And you can see there, our compliance with our SLA is great. Now, there is a breach there. There's that one that, that spikes up. 
And it turns out that this was an automated email from one of our threat intel vendors, and the system should have snarfed it from the mail queue before it made it to us, and no human response was necessary. But that's a sign that a tool is broken. And because we're holding ourselves to this bar, because we have this setting here, every single breach is investigated. It's not that we took an SLA and we hope not to cross it. Every single breach is investigated. And now we're calibrating objectively. Our discipline was terrible before we started measuring. It was moderately bad after we started measuring. And it's near perfect now that we've got an SLA. One thing that's really important here is you have to completely separate following the standard procedure and meeting the SLA from debating whether or not the procedure and SLA are right. If you're on call, you have two choices. You do the thing, or you escalate like hell. Those are your only two choices. When you come off call, I want to have the debate. We want to talk about it. We want to brainstorm other things we can do. But while you're on call, you do the thing or you escalate. And what, what clicked for me is that my father understands this. This is why the checklist comes out of that pocket every single time the plane takes off. You're supposed to run the checklist when you fire up the plane. You run the checklist when you fire up the plane. So back to our mission statement. Jeff likes to talk about how we like to, to think long. We're in this for the long haul. We're playing the long game. And that's true of AWS and of security in AWS. Remember, people in good intentions. They mean well, but if something is hard, discipline is challenging to maintain and it's going to slip. So back to the deeply scientific charts. We are security professionals. We want lots of security. And so when we build, we're going to set the bar high. And we're going to build a service. And it's going to meet that bar. It's going to exceed that bar. It's going to be awesome. Lots of least privilege, really tight firewall policies. Everything's going to be super detailed. But it's going to be complicated. And so every time you change that system, you're going to have to understand the implications of that change on your firewall policies, on your IAM policies. And so over time, you run the risk of the actual delivered security of the system dropping. I don't know how many times I've seen policies that were beautiful from a least privileged perspective, like exactly and only the operations should, should have been permitted, but the policy was 14 pages long. No human being could possibly understand it. And so then a well-meaning change is made. It gets code reviewed. Every change gets code reviewed. And you have a series of these changes that get code reviewed. And the end result is the policy allows everything. But the policy is long, and it looks detailed. It looks good. And so either you're going to have a draconian review process. You're going to make sure that like, you do formal reasoning about every single change, in which case velocity is going to go down and people are going to work around you. Or it's going to be easy, and security is going to drop. And if instead you set a reasonable bar, you can maintain that bar over time. I think that one of the most important milestones in an engineer's career is when they pull up the source code because someone did something stupid, and they type git blame, and their name is on the line next to the stupid thing. Like, the idiot that's maintaining your system may be you. And that, that's such an eye-opening moment. And so mere mortals are going building this thing in the future, and they're not going to understand the complex, subtle reasoning that we have when we, when we decided how to build the really complex system. Uh, one team that I was talking to said, this is safe as long as there are no set UID binaries on the disk. And it was true. It was safe as long as there were no set UID binaries on the disk. But what are the odds two years from now that anyone's going to remember that we had that conversation? 
There's no mechanism there. There's nothing stopping you from putting a set UID binary on the disk. Someone perfectly well-intentioned, they're probably going to wind up doing it. It's going to break our invariant. We're going to be sad. And so I, I don't want to be misunderstood here. If you're building a root CA or you've got compliance requirements, I'm not telling you to accept risks that are unacceptable to the business. But we found that we do much better when we optimize for the long term. It frees up our engineers to work on other things. It makes it easier for us to audit the systems. And it makes it more likely that the service teams are going to get it right independently. For those that don't like graphs, I've got a heretical statement here. Least privilege really is maximum effort. If you're going to turn all the knobs to 11, it's going to cost you more. And sometimes it's worth it to turn the knobs all the way to 11. That's fine. But make sure it's actually worth it. Again, I'm not proposing that you take on unacceptable risk. I'm saying that you should do what you can to avoid having to build really high assurance systems. And if you do have to build one, leverage it as much as you can. We've got KMS. KMS is the slowest moving service in AWS intentionally. It is really hard to push changes into KMS. And so if you're going to manage keys in AWS, you use KMS. Like, we do not let service teams build another key management system. We get everything we can out of the investment we've made in KMS. Here's a, a typical IT security lifecycle. You can find diagrams like this all over the place. As security professionals, we want to stop the bad stuff. If bad stuff happens, and it inevitably does, just like failures inevitably happen, you want to catch it as soon as you can. Once you've caught it, you want to respond to it. You need to clean up. You need to uh, put the system back online, whatever it is that you need to do. And then when you're done with that, you need to think about what happened back in to make the system better. And most security thinking revolves around prevention, which makes sense. I mean, we, we stop bad things from happening. But remember, we're in this to maximize the delivered customer value. Preventing bad things from happening is awfully close to preventing good things from happening. If you lock the system down too much, it's either going to ground to a halt or people are going to work around you. And so you've got to be realistic about what you can achieve. And there's a, a quote from the 2011 shareholder letter that applies really well here. Um, I read the shareholder letter every year. Um, every year, Jeff attaches the shareholder letter from 1997, and it is eerie how well he predicted the future 20 years ago. One of my colleagues taught me to think about this like a chemical reaction. There's some activation energy that's required to get the reaction started. And it may be exothermic, it may be self-sustaining, but you've got to kick it off. A lot of the awesome things that we've launched have been a lone engineer working in an evening or a weekend with a cool idea, and their tolerance for friction is approximately zero. Even if the approval they're seeking is a rubber stamp, if they've got to go get approval, they're saying, ah, forget it. I'm going to go do something else. And we don't even know that we missed the opportunity to say yes. The opportunity cost here is very difficult to measure. And so we work really hard to get out of the way of our service teams to enable our engineers to experiment, to innovate, and eventually to delight customers. And so that's led us to significantly shift to detective controls over preventative controls. Detective controls are much cheaper to implement than preventative controls. You're, you're not there in the production uh, flow. So the security innovate. They can iterate on their own without having to engage the team. You can do crazy things because you're not there dropping packets or denying API calls. And so uh, you can try things out. You can see what the results are. When an engineer has a great idea, they're more likely to be able to just go and do it. We get broader visibility. Our internal customers get greater agility. We're optimizing both sides of that mission statement. 
And I don't want to give you the wrong impression here. We do spend a lot of time and effort on preventative controls. We wouldn't be where we were if we don't. But you have to carefully examine your controls and your objectives and make sure that you actually need prevention. In many cases, we start out with detective, and as the system gels and starts to change more slowly, and as our understanding of it deepens, we'll shift to preventative. And of course, all of this is automated. Remember that, that gap in personnel between AWS security and the rest of the AWS? With, with the fleet the size that it is, and our team the size that it is, automation is the only way forward. And so people always ask, what should we automate? Like, customers want to know, you've got these awesome automation tools, what have you done? And, I don't know. I don't know what your environment looks like. I don't know what data is important to you. But still, I think this is the wrong question to ask. What's way more is to automate one thing. And sure, we're going to build systems like Guard Duty, and we're going to offer them to our customers, and that's going to take out the common stuff. But there's something about your business that's unique that differentiates you. And you're going to have invariants that you want to maintain that are not common invariants, that aren't built into Guard Duty or Inspector or Macy. And so, you're going to have to maintain those invariants. You're going to have to check them yourself. Pick one, I don't care which one, and make it work end to end. Get the data you need, analyze the data you need, determine if anyone's crossed a line, and then do something about it. Call for a grown-up, cut a ticket, revert the API call, whatever. Get that done, and then build the feedback loop such that when something bad happens, you ask the question, what invariant are we missing? And that's what we have. Amazon has a strong COE process, cause of error. And what we added to the COE template, the question, what security invariants are we missing? And so something bad happens, we do a COE. That question is right there. It needs to be answered. Those invariants are added to the backlog. We burn down the backlog in priority order. And so we have some amazing tools. I really like these. But the first version of all of them was an engineer, a laptop, and a pizza. It was one guy, it's usually i-searing Python, it used to be i-searing Perl, and it's terrible. It, it, it's bailing wire and duct tape and it barely works, but it does the thing. And then we make it better and we make it better and we make it better and we add a check and we add a use case, and over time these tools become really powerful. The most important thing is to have that feedback loop where you don't regress, where you keep getting smarter, where you keep adding checks. So, one of the things that I love about our automation here is that it automatically keeps tickets in the right state. If you have a risk that you haven't resolved and you close the ticket, we will automatically reopen the ticket. If you fix the risk, you revert your security group, lock down your bucket, whatever it is, we'll automatically close the ticket. And so the majority of the tickets that we cut, and we track this, it's one of the metrics we review, the majority of the tickets that we cut never have an AWS security engineer engage on the ticket at all. And these tickets are awesome. It's an opportunity for targeted education. Like, I don't know why you cracked open your security group. You cracked open your security group, you get a ticket from us, and the ticket doesn't say, you did this wrong, go fix it. The ticket said, you've done this, you've exposed this port to the internet. This is what this port is. This is why we're concerned about it. Here's pointers to some vulnerabilities. Here's three or four things you can do to make this risk go away. Here's how to contact us if you think this is the right thing to do for your business. And so it's not that terrible, god-awful annual security training that makes you flash so you can take the security training. It's exactly what the engineer needs to know based on exactly what they're doing right now. And most of these things, they follow the remediation instructions and the, the risk closes out, but then it leads to some awesome conversations like, no, really. 
Like uh, code commit. You're not allowed to expose password auth SSH to the internet. But code commit has an SSH endpoint and it does password auth. And like, what, are we gonna turn the service off? And so they engage with us and like, this is what we're doing. Like, this is the service we're building. This is what we need to do. And we came up with a path forward and it was awesome. And it was very targeted. It was very efficient use of our security engineer time. And so I, these tickets, I, I really love these tickets. The next thing people ask is, is your system real time? I, I don't know. Uh, depends on what your definition of real time is. Um, seconds, minutes, hours, whatever. For me, the biggest consideration here is how expensive is this gonna be to fix? So if you crack your security group open and six months later we learn about it, that's gonna be a very expensive fix. We're gonna have to look at the flow logs, we're gonna have to figure out if there are any production dependencies, we're gonna have to file a CM and like, you know, 18 people will be on the call watching metrics. It's gonna take us a long time to fix this. If you crack your security group open and we detect it and you're still sitting in your chair, you haven't changed jobs, you haven't left the company, you're not gonna have to page everything in, you just, oh, wow, click, and it's fixed. And so is this bimodal cost to fix, really expensive or really cheap? And you wanna get everything into the really cheap bucket. And so if you can catch it within the duration of a human's attention span, you win. Now, if you can't accept exposure, the duration of a human's attention span, you shouldn't have a detective you need a preventative control. But if you can accept that, if I have a choice between driving a detection from a week to a day or from a day to an hour, I'll always choose a week to a day. Like you get the person while they're still at their desk and they still remember what they were doing, it's still open in the IDE. And so as a result, we've changed this diagram to add this arrow here. When you're sitting down in the analysis phase, you ask, do we need to do anything? This might have been a black swan event. Like, it may be that something bad happened and it's never gonna happen again, or the cost of doing something dramatically outweighs the expectation of loss for future events, in which case you don't do anything. Okay, if we do need to do something, does it need to be preventative or can it be detective? And if it can be detective, we'll go detective. It's much faster, you get broader coverage. So, back to the definition of normalization of deviance. There's this bit here without catastrophic results. And you don't wanna have catastrophic results, but you can have negative consequences. And so that's another reason why I like this detective cut a ticket, because then the service team knows we crossed a line. We did something that has security implications, and they need to go fix it. And it's a little negative feedback there to get them to remember like, oh yeah, like go find someone, anyone from AWS, and ask them if they've been ticketed by Palisade. They'll tell you yes. And so it's this, this feedback loop that gives people consequences for their actions. The other place that we use this is with pen testing. It's a waste of good finding. Like, everyone knows you have to do this, you have to do that, you know, these things can be broken, you see the stories on the news. I don't know how many times I've seen someone flip the switch when you show them, this is me logged into your system. This is, this is not a buffer overflow in some piece of software out there on the internet that you're reading about on the news. This is your box. And they see that prompt there, and like, it's, it's personal. And there's negative consequences there. And all of a sudden, it becomes real to them. And so we do a lot of penetration testing, and we get a lot of mileage out of it. We've been talking a lot about mechanisms here. 
Everyone at Amazon talks about mechanisms. And a lot of our mechanisms are large and complicated and expensive. Like, I'm not suggesting that you go out and build a massive ticketing system and convince everyone in your company to use it for everything. Um, the only reason we use the ticketing system is already there. It was the cheapest way for us to get to, to quantitative data that we could capture easily. And so mechanisms come in all sizes, large and small. And this is a mechanism that Andy taught me, and I, I, I really love it. So everyone tracks action items. And if this were a real action item, it would be smart. It would be way more detailed. But this isn't an action item. This is an aspiration. It's a statement of work. Charlie Bell is fond of saying, hope is not a plan. This is good intentions. And so it's not an action item until it has an ECD, an estimated completion date. Is this a good ECD? Well, it turns out it's not. And so we have a Python script. It took an engineer a couple hours to write. It uses a standard date library. This date is flagged for two reasons. This year, it's Sunday. Team's probably not working on Sunday. And it's New Year's Eve. And so it's entirely possible that this is the, the thing that you signed up to do is really high priority, and you're going to work New Year's for it, and you really are going to be done on Sunday. But this is probably worth looking at. Like, of all, the, of all the action items that we've got outstanding, of all the ECDs that we're tracking, this allows us to very quickly narrow in on the ones that need attention. And the cool thing is that if you make up a date at random, you have just shy of a 30% chance of getting flagged. And so that's really nice. But we go back to the team. They give us January 5th. That's a Friday. People work on Friday. Is this a good ECD? Just like that bar graph that I showed, it has no history, it has no past. And so the trick here is you never erase a date. You cross them out. And so if I'm looking at the ECD and it looks like this, this is probably a really solid ECD. Like, the team thought they were going to be done on Wednesday. They're tracking this really closely. They're letting us know ahead of time that they're going to slip by two days. 1.5 is a great ECD. I'm down with that. But if it looks like this, first of all, I mean, November 5th wasn't even a weekday. But this is them kicking the can down the road a month at a time. Like, why is January going to be any different from December or November or October? And so this immediately tells our engineers that we need to dig in here. And so you could just scan down a list of ECDs and instantly pick out the ones that you need to pay attention to. And you can do this with Excel. You can do this with a terrible Python script. Um, it's a really small, simple mechanism. But it's structured, it's repeatable, and it's quantifiable. Here's another example of a common pattern that we see. And at this point, it's too late to do anything about this. Like, January 5th is almost upon us. But if the team kicks the can six months down the road, they happen to have picked a weekday. Like, they're in the 70%, not the 30%. But this is still a terrible ECD. Like, there's, there's no data backing this. And so this is another opportunity for us to go dive in. Anyway, it's an example of a small mechanism. Amazonians are constantly looking for mechanisms so they can replace good intentions. So, to summarize, we have yet to patch humans. They're weird. And, like, really, if you want to do some reading on this, uh, I started with Wikipedia. Um, the Bay of Pigs is a fascinating read. Groupthink and the CIA. Um, this, this keeps happening throughout human history. And as you read more about this, you, you, you try to introspect and you realize that you're doing it. Um, there's something called the IKEA effect. Uh, this is how Duncan Hines made his money. 
there were cake mixes for years, and no one was buying them because adding milk or water to a mix, like that's, that's not baking. Duncan Hines had you add an egg. Now it's my cake. And so this is, it's actually called the Ikea effect. Um, and so they, they had a bunch of people build Ikea furniture, and then they had an auction, and you could bid on Ikea furniture that was professionally assembled, or Ikea furniture that was assembled by you. And people always are willing to pay more for the Ikea furniture that they built themselves. Because it's mine, it must be good. And in engineering, that pops up as not invented here. And it's just fascinating like, when you see these things and you catch yourself doing them. Security is everyone's job. Uh, I was very happy that Werner stole my thunder today during his keynote. Um, but saying it doesn't make it happen. Our mechanism for making this true is that Friday meeting where Andy shows his leaders the behavior that he wants to see. It's not the only mechanism that works, it's the one that we happen to have, but you need something that makes it real and not just words. You've gotta measure objectively. And like that graph that I showed you, that's not the first graph that we made. Staleness is not the first thing we thought to measure. Like we flailed around a long time here. We've got way more metrics than we report on, we've got way more reports than we have SLAs on, and you just keep iterating. And you find something that is a reasonable proxy for the business. You make sure that the business is doing well and that you don't completely believe the proxy, but then you can measure the proxy, you can report on the proxy. And that helps make sure, when you look at the, the, the three-month graph, the one-year graph, and if that line is trending down, there's something wrong. And if that line is up where you want it to be, you're measuring objectively. And security is all about efficiency. Your number one constrained resource is most likely human beings. It's ours. Like, I'm not going to run out of computers. I'm not going to run out of terabytes. But skilled human beings with good judgment are very hard to find. And you want to make sure that you're getting the most out of them. And that means using them in their sweet spot. It means taking into account the foibles of human beings. Anyway, that's how AWS thinks about security. Thank you. <laughs>